Let's look again at the human stories of this war. Let's look at hundreds of people put by the Russian soldiers into a village school basement for almost a month in Yahidne. Let's hear the story of a crowd of people at Kramatorsk railway station shelled by the Russian missile while they were waiting for an evacuation train. Let's remember stories of people living in residential buildings in Chernihiv, Izum or Borodyanka on which Russians dropped aviation bombs. Let's remember that the war is always about human suffering and this war is particularly about the unthinkable Russian cruelty. And let's work hard to ensure that justice prevails. You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of PEN Ukraine. My guest today is Natalia Humenyuk, one of the best-known Ukrainian reporters, founder of the Reckoning Project. The project has recently published a book of reports from this war, The Most Horrible Days of My Life, Najstrašniši dni moho žitja. This book is telling in detail human stories of this war. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Natalia Humenyuk, welcome to this podcast. Uh, thank you for the invitation. So you recently, with your Reckoning project, published a book which is called Najstrašniši dni moho žitja, The Most Horrible Days of My Life. This is a book of reportage. And this is a book also, it enters into your concept of bringing together the journalistic reportage and actually the questions of justice. Can you tell me more about this? I would also tell that this book, I believe it's a historic document of the first year of the war because it uh, portrays the uh, biggest and the most important war crimes committed by Russia during the first year of the invasion, including the bombardment, tortures. Um, and uh, it's all based on the testimonies of the survivors and the witnesses. According to the reckoning methodology, we talk presumably to survivors and witnesses who can testify in the court. So everything in this book, despite all these reportages that were also published in some of the major global publications like the Time magazine or the Atlantic, um, they are eligible for the courts. It is evidence. And... Um, I uh, within our project we really speak about the idea about the courts of public opinion and uh, which are going together with the courts uh, and working already for the second year on documenting war crimes I really believe even more that in modern world unless there is an article unless it's written there are no chances to investigate in fact the awareness about the crimes is indeed working for uh, the lawyers, for the, pro for the prosecutors to work with the cases. And it's also extremely important for the survivors and the witnesses that their stories, before we would have this 
idea of the, you know, uh, a trial which might happen in, in a few years or later, there is something, there is some truth recorded. Tell me uh, about the way how you talk to people. Uh, we talked about this, I think, the last time we've met. And uh, I think I shared with you this experience that uh, when I'm talking to the to the people who suffered from, from the horrible crimes, I'm surprised how uh, they are willing to talk. Uh, so there is no, no this barrier that you need to work a lot with the person to to ask her his or her him or her to to talk this is by the way a difference with the military not not every military not every soldier would would be willing to talk what is your experience um first of all we talk just to the people who want to talk you know sometimes you need to persuade some people because mainly they are shy or they do not understand so far the significance of their story uh but in fact there is a lot of people who are not talking that's also should we understand in the early stage of the war it was a feeling that you know everybody is ready to talk so we hear all about all the crimes the more it's lasting especially now with a long-term occupation, I unfortunately fee- feel and observe something we have observed in 2014-2015 in the occupied Donbass and Crimea. People are ready to talk. The longer the occupation lasts, they see that maybe there won't be liberation anytime soon or we won't feel that the justice would come. They are more reluctant, by the way. Uh, so... I earlier was asked many times, like, oh, how can you document war crimes when the war is ongoing? Usually it's done after. Our experience says the opposite. The earlier the crime has committed, the person is ready to talk and share. Then the human memory just makes people to forget it because it's very traumatic experience. So the earlier you talk after the event which occurred, the more chances that people would be ready to speak. So for instance, now the people who survived from the uh, attack on the maternity ward, they were very outspoken during the first half a year. But after a year, because also my colleague is doing, Angelina Karakina is doing the film about that, they are not really willing because they think like, I want to forget it. So the time is not on our side, but for me, we can discuss how you approach people, you know, what is, how about that traumatic experience. For me, the main is really to treat people with the dignity that they are survivors and the witnesses. They have the story. It depends on them whether there would be, you know, court and investigation. So it's not, not really about the, you know, just this empathy and compassion when you pity somebody who lived through something horrible. No, you're really, you know, thinking that, like, you lived through something, your story is important, and you often are just, I mean, maybe, I wonder how war, this word is fitting, but you're so inspired by how people can live with that and tell. So... If I would speak about the approach, it's not really about just trauma or something or being cautious, but it's really about dignity and explanation that, you know, your story matters. I I would agree with you about the time. At the same time, I think uh, it is also important, well, if, if our idea is to document and to re- really record it, that you, you need to find a special spot in time. For example, I, I remember we talked with a, with a man in Izum who lost seven members of his family when this uh, one of the buildings was bombarded. 
we were talking in a year after and he was very calm and uh for me it's i mean it's a horrible experience of losing seven members of your family including three children and then waiting for over one month to to get the bodies i i i think that in the in the first probably of course days and weeks he would be unable to to speak right no no of course we're not really speaking uh, because it's a very meticulous process uh, our testimonies are very in depth so it's really a few hours in a very particular environment so people are calm ready to speak which can't be done on the spot so when for instance we're doing like more news type reportage i or somebody else we would come to the place of the tragedy we would probably meet the people but we of course won't speak to them during the first days but speaking about the second <laughs> year of the war uh it, it's still the we, we're still talking to so many people from bucha from the crimes which committed during the first uh months of the war and uh a lot of crimes has been committed in 2022 and people haven't yet told their stories and that's i'm feeling that you know this first months like the first year is really essential later unless they told this story you know like it stays with them but they really thought like okay if i haven't told about that maybe you know i i leave it you know i don't want to touch it But some of people are really have taken the role of these virgils into hell, you know. And I would I would like to go to um, uh, to one of the stories in this book, the famous or notorious story of Yahidna, uh, because now there is uh, we've met uh, recently um, an old man called Ivan, and he's kind of a this person who takes the groups and shows them the place, and he's doing this uh, again and again. But the story of Yahidna this is a village in Chernihiv Oblast where the Russian soldiers put over 300 people into the basement of the school and um uh, kept them for over uh, for almost a month and there were from 50 to 70 kids and uh some people have died there were of course the situation with suffocation with lack of air and this is one of the more most horrible stories that we uh read here in in this book because there are of course stories with bombardments we will talk about them later but this is a conscious crime when you put 300 people into the basement without any food without any capacity to go to the toilet etc uh is it kind of a mm, is it an an exception in this war or you see it rather the rule, as a rule the uh the type of the people who becoming the uh the, the ones who 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 are your narrators who are your guides for this story or about the how usually is it, no 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 i mean i mean this crime the crime of yahidna is it uh, the crime is of, of yahidna is quite unusual if you really speak about the whole village being put into basement uh for the whole months it's really a bit unique to be honest and i think there were a lot of uh then ideas to find a similar village elsewhere so the people were really um so, but but we don't want to undermine the other crimes as well uh, but it's indeed very horrific by you know by the whole idea how you imagine this place and it's true 11 people died while being in the dais- basement mainly uh elderly also there were people who were shot down uh who were shot in in the village uh just like 
around. Uh, so it, it is really the the very very unique story on on the way how it was built, and it's. But I can say that it's also exception that it's just a wrongdoing of a particular officer. Because there are people who should be accountable for this particular crime, the ones who uh, are uh, responsible for controlling the people, and we understand that some of the Russian commanders, they had this sadistic nature, you know, that they were speaking in a very humiliating tone, that it's it's really their responsibility uh, for, for making this particular thing. What we should also add that they use this basement as the shield uh, because they um, organized the command and control center in the first uh, floor of the same school. That was the reason uh, why the Ukrainian army couldn't liberate for a while this village because they couldn't shell on the school where the whole village is under the uh, military Russian capacity. Uh, so it was well thought. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, but I now see that you know those torture chambers which exist all over occupied territories, they are still there. They may be not a village, but a you know few particular members of the town. So I still see that the general approach it's quite similar. We cannot say that oh this is outlier. It's aberration. It was just this horrible uh, colonel or major, uh, despite the uniqueness of this particular story, it's still a part of the larger Russian way of waging the war against villages, against populations. Maybe they don't need any longer to put the whole village in the basement. It's actually the practice, practice which didn't work. But they still keep the whole village in detention, even if the people in, are in their houses. Yes, because they, they block the villages. <coughs> we see many stories when uh, uh, we talk to people in Kharkiv Oblast and they explained us that, okay, there was six months of occupation and out of the six months, three months, the whole village was blocked. That means no food, for example, no medicines, etc. But let me ask you about Yahidne. What, is, what are the details maybe that, uh, that you find the most horrible in the story? Um, so I've been in Yahidne a few days after the liberation. And I, we were like really terrified by that story at that moment. It's very special because also in that Yahidna there were soldiers from Tiva region. Uh, Tiva is the republic close to Mongolia. Uh, in fact, the Russian minister of, for defense, Shoigu, is from that area, and it's one of the poorest areas in Russia. So there were soldiers from that region, and that was pretty exotic for the Ukrainian uh, villages back then. However, we figure out that they were not the worst. The worst were really the ones who... Uh, controlled the 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 basement and uh, I remember the moment uh, which despite everything you heard I remember how when I we talked with the author Svetlana because we were doing the film uh, all together and in the they are also available online to watch uh, that uh, she said that when they didn't have a toilet paper the soldiers brought them the books of the Ukrainian language and history in particular which is, of course, humiliating. But if you really look into the legal part, it's really, you know, like a larger crime about the dignity about the people. And uh, that is something which I found, like, like symbolically a very strong thing. 
the the fact that they were not allowing properly to uh, bury the the dead uh and uh but i still would say about these survivors the head of the village and to be honest it's not like a usual head of the village it's such a tiny village that they have like an mp who is not paid for that who is in charge of the village but without really particular duties uh, valeri is my age he's rather young man and he was not really like this leader this kind of elected authority it just happened there should be one contact person and he understood that at some moment when russian came there should be something to protect the people or speak on behalf of people and for me this is a story of this natural heroes why all of a sudden one person needs to be the ones who interacts with the enemy with the russian soldiers there was interesting moment when once they wanted that these people you know say that let you know let's give up they want to kind of record for propagandistic reason uh the confession that they want putin to end this war and things like that to to kind of be loyal to russia and for that the russians promised them to give some humanitarian aid and valeri actually risked his life because he really partially lied to the russian soldiers that people denied to do that he just after after the soldiers returned with a camera and something saying like are you ready to speak he said like no 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 nobody wants we we won't risk that and he said like like he cursed and and just left but maybe <laughs> you know that was a risk of the life so for me still interact with the people who really risk their life without fully understanding that they you know without fully without being this usual heroes as you as you imagine but became just because of the responsibility became so this is also the part of the very very fascinating story for me yeah i think it, this is a war when ordinary so called ordinary people become extraordinary and we he, we see many stories like that of course in the army but also among civilians i remember talking with the with a worker of herson arts museum who actually also lied to the occupier saying okay there is no collection it was evacuated it was in the basement then she said there is no uh, systematic uh, description of the collection it was and finally they found out that she she lied so they could have killed her or the librarians well the librarians of Kherson uh, or Mikolaev Kherson I mean yeah occupied Kherson when they were rejecting to come to the war and just you know making all this cunning cunning stories uh but i i didn't know about this this story with ukrainian books i did know about the other story the opposite stories when they were giving uh the komsomolska pravda to the to the dwellers of the the basement and the the dwellers used that in in a different way that's also the point because uh, you mentioned this komsomolska pravda and uh, for me I I have this uh piece of paper of Komsomolskaya Pravda and I I really think it should be the the huge piece of evidence because it's the special edition of Komsomolskaya Pravda which was handed to the Russian soldiers together with their some booklets and on the fir- front page there was uh the reasoning for this so-called special operation 
and by the way, I, I, I saw this uh, the same paper and I picked it up in, 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 in other liberated areas uh, at different issues. But for me, what was interesting that there is a name of editor-in-chief, of the build editor, of the editor, of the literature editor, of the anybody. It had seven, it was published with seven million copies. And it was not a usual paper. And we should understand it's the largest Russian paper, uh, the most popular tabloid. So you really can say that it goes together. And yes, they were giving this pay, but I, I really laughed at that point because at the same time, it's a piece of um, evidence of Russian propaganda and instrumentalizing it. But when I ask like survivors saying like, and where they had, had what was happening with this paper, said so like, oh yeah, they were heading it to us. So like, and how did you react? So like, we were very happy. We needed a toilet paper. So you know, you really think that you know they try, they do. We shouldn't undermine the cause because maybe people didn't use it, but the soldiers maybe read it. Yeah. Let me turn to another story, which is uh, very close geographically, the story of Chernihiv, and it is described by Vira Kuriko, I think one of the best Ukrainian reporters. Uh, I recently went to to Chernihiv and met Vira, and uh, she actually took us to this cemetery, uh, which was which is not official cemetery. It is in the park, but where people were buried after these horrible strikes. So this was the first big aerial uh, aviation strike with aviation bomb on Chernihiv, and and we know afterwards. It was the 3rd of March, 2022. But afterwards, there was the story of Borodyanka, there was the story of Izum, two uh, five-floor buildings. And for our listeners, just to give you an understanding, well, after these bomb strikes, half of the building is gone. So actually, the number of deaths in each of the buildings, it's dozens and dozens of people. And Vira is just giving this story by story, person by person, and, you, and you're like in the movie. Uh, going, you know, with uh, with multiple stories in that way. But what struck me is that she describes many stories of those people who were evacuated after Chernobyl uh, disaster from Pripyat to Chernihiv. So they actually, for them, they're losing their home uh, again. And uh, we 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 know these stories. Uh, a lot of a lot of these stories exist from from the eastern Ukraine, from uh, from Donetsk, from Luhansk. They evacuated. I mean, to Irpin or Bucha, and then they they needed to lose lose the home again. Can you tell me more about we, this? Within the reckoning, we really deliberately look at these you know repeating crimes and the legacy of the crimes. Of course, Chernobyl uh, nuclear accident in 1986. It's a separate, you know, crime committed during Soviet times. Uh, it's a tragedy. It was a disaster. But also, we can discuss, you know, the decision of building the station there. But for me, in a moment when audiences and the people are getting used to the airstrikes, saying that as if it's a collateral damage of the war, it's really extremely important. And that was, you know, with that particular story to stress that destroying one life, destroying one house, destroying maybe one piece, one thing, is uh, the destroying one universe. Because one of the protagonists, she brought some of the equipment from Pripyat. She was very young. She lost everything, one home, and 
we were in looking at that, how she was, uh, you know, thinking that like she can lose something again. One of the, prote- another characters of this story, and that's for me also a very darling person I met myself, her, she's in closer to her 60s, 70s, uh, and, but she was an orphan during the Soviet times. She didn't have proper things, proper clothes. And for her, and she was probably mocked or bullied in the school for, for that. So she by now looks perfectly when she meets somebody among her, rub, in, in these rubbles. She has her makeup. She has a very nice hat. She looks so beautiful. And her house was for her, you know, like the first house, something which was the sense of her life for somebody who never had a family, a house, own place, and destroying it. It's not really destroying just something, you know, it's just a thing. And how precious this house was for her, this flat, then we can understand the the depth of the tragedy uh, and the depth of the crime which I want really to, to stress because I think we really do not fully understand. And like this week, I went to see the house in Kiev, which has today so far is one of the most destroyed. Uh, luckily in that regard, Ukraine has air defense and it's the strongest in the Kiev. So not the whole house was wiped, wiped up, wiped out. Otherwise, if there won't be air defense, there would be way more people uh killed but you know i looked at that looking at this in very freezing weather how you know windows and everything and some things there and i understand that for somebody it's something very very precious it's not just a ruins it's not the rubbles and i do think that at this moment on the second year of the war we also have to stress that this is not just collateral damage sure and uh I think this explains to us why people are first so reluctant to leave their homes, even in a very difficult circumstances, and why they come back. There's so many stories when, for example, if you, if you move to from Izum to Slovyansk, we all know this this highway, and there are villages around Kamyon, Kadolina, and some others who visit them very regularly, and we see how people first time we were in Kamyonka, there were five people, then there were twenty five, then there were even despite the fact that there were mines around, and some people uh, tragically stepped on these uh, key mines and lost their lost their um, their legs, but people are coming back because this is home, and and people are living in these ruins because this is home. Another t- another story, also very very tragic, is that uh, Russians are very often shelling the crowds of people, and uh, some of our friends have died because of that. Victoria Melina in Kramatorsk in summer twenty twenty three. But one particular thing is shelling the railways, railway stations. Recently, there was an attack on Kherson railway station, but you described the attack on Kramatorsk railway station. Also, dozens of people, I think over 60, right? Uh, have, 59. Have there are 59 official casualties, but I still think it's one single, the most horrific crime of this war. If you really would say like what for me was like one attack, uh, not like series of bombardment, because... 
at that time, at the station, there were around 3,000 people. It was on the uh, height of the evacuation. It was the moment when, you know, Kiev has been partially, li was liberated, and the whole theater of the battles were moving to the Donbass. So there was a huge call for the evacuation. Thousands of people every day were going through Kramatorsk train station. It was very clear it's happening there. A few weeks before that, I had a chance to talk to the boss governors of Luhansk and Donetsk region, and they were also terrified how to organize evacuation because for them, it was still kind of the question, what would happen if there would be this attack? So for me, it's not just like, you know, just attack. I talked about possibility of such attack, and I couldn't have imagined that it would be that horrible. So what we should understand and what we were able to prove while talking to witnesses, the, the, the Russian army used uh, the weapon, the cluster munition, which is used usually against the paratroopers. So it's against civilians. Not civilians, it's against human. Uh, so it's not the particular type of weapon. First of all, it's very precise. But the second, it, secondly, it's a type of weapon which hurt humans and won't destroy a building, a military vehicle. So before that attack, there were cases that the Russians were telling that, you know, there are some Ukrainian military there. And of course, it's a railway station and there were some of the things somewhere. But the point was, it was targeted on the, on the building where there were over 3,000 people at that moment. And Every single person who've been at that station had observed something, probably the most horrific scene they've ever seen, because this particular munition, it destroys your body. It's not like a bomb which destroys one building. There are a lot of small items which, which destroyed, which harm the body, which mutilate. So it was like the pools of uh, blood all over the place outside of the station and people were in, in inside and even those 3,000 who needed to leave because over 100 has been injured, 50, 59 had died, they all should really get through the you know like the pools of the human blood and bodies and I do understand that anybody who has been at this station is an absolutely victim. I should mention also that you know, we showed the film a year after. In, in, there is a report in the book, but there is a film exactly a year after uh, in Kramatorsk train station uh, for the survivors, for the witnesses, for rescue workers, uh, because for them, by that time, it was the most horrible thing which ever happened in, in this area. Uh, we went to the pizzeria uh, in uh, Kramatorsk after that because it was like the usual place to, to eat at, uh, at that place uh, because it's just like very nearby in the center and therefore for me, you know, like kind of like these attacks the another attack was uh, where Victoria uh, died and was murdered is also like very close you know like these places are for me inseparable because you know like we were discussing that that's where we spent time when we were in Kramatorsk some some months after and I also want to stress that it's unfortunately was for a while untold story partially because this story. I heard about the attack on Kramatorsk at the moment when I was writing a report about Bucha. 
nobody really cared about Kramatorsk at that time. I could like have just some minutes to 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 include it into the piece and tell it on the radio but all the eyes were on Bucha we were so because it was April it, it was, was April early April yeah. early April and Kyiv Kyiv region was just liberated right so yes so in in this regard many people in Ukraine including didn't really know that it was bad they heard there was something bad but they couldn't understand the gravity and for me till now it's the most gruesome one single attack of this war yeah i would i would agree with you and for me as well of course this ria pizza we have been there i think three times two times or three times and one of the uh, of the stories also connecting these two things that we were with our Friends uh, from Germany, from the, the president of Penn Berlin, uh, and we went to Kramatorsk railway station precisely to just make uh, a short report. Yes, so yeah, this Ria Pizza was a really and very crowded place, which which would uh, I would I would stress that uh, Russians are targeting crowded uh, places. But the same with the uh, Kherson railway. We we've been there. The attack was uh, just recently, just a, a few weeks ago, right? It uh, was late December, I think. We were there on 10th December, in the, exactly in the same hole, going through, there are special procedures, so you need to talk to the police officer, they check your phone, etc. So th- there is a crowd of people, you cannot just be dispersed, you know, around. Maybe uh, let me also ask how you work with those places, with occupied places, to which you cannot really reach out, to places like Mariupol, to places like Berdyansk, like Melitopol and others. Um, so from the very beginning of the war, among our researchers and journalists, there were Oleg Baturin, who is, uh, who is from one of the best reporters from uh, Kahovka. Uh, which is still liberated. Uh, he has been occupied. He's sorry. So Oleg Baturin is from Kahovka, which is still occupied. Uh, the town on the left bank of Kherson region. Oleg has been detained for eight days himself in March, but managed to escape. Natalia Bimbiraita was is like very famous journalist and human rights defender from Kherson. And I think for the first month, her son was not really that much in the news. But for us, we from the very first days of the, uh, you know, of the project had the people who were really very close to the locals. They were the vocal points for the locals to reach. Uh, so we talked to quite a few people who escaped. They mainly who escaped the the occupation. Uh, and later, part of the Kherson region has been uh, liberated in November 2022. And we were able also to prove that most of those stories, like, it's exactly what people told us. They told us about this detention center. They, we, we, we were able to not just come, uh, but see with our own eyes. It was not surprise. I heard that stories when I came to that place or this place. And uh, we went we really appreciated this, um, appreciated that, and we deliberately in the project look very much to the stories about the occupation with a couple of reasons. First of all, it's really about the uh, knowledge. Sometimes people would say, we don't know what's going on in the occupation. We don't have 
news. We don't have access. What we can claim, we have hundreds of testimonies from occupied areas. We actually know it's a modern world. And it's also a huge argument for the necessity of the liberation because there couldn't be any moral justification for allowing people stay under the occupation. So within our project, and me as an editor and um, one of the leading person, I'm really focused on that. Uh, we also have our you know, history of reporting a lot from occupied Crimea and occupied Donbass after 2014. So I know, I, I felt it for many years, how hard it is to get those stories, how fast the interest is going away, and how difficult for the Western reporters is to tell this story, because contrary to, you know, Chernihiv, elsewhere, you can't come, you know, it's more difficult. Luckily, luckily, but thanks to the liberation of, in, of Izum, of Kherson, there were kind of abundant stories when the journalists went there and told the truth. It lasted for some period of time. Uh, but till now, I should say there are still very, the, the horrible things are happening in Berdyansk, in Melitopol, uh, in Zaporizhia region, in uh, the rest of the Kherson region, and they are happening. What our research shows that the longer occupation is lasting, the more chances that the people are killed. They are, might be detained for a longer period of time. They may, might be detained for, you know, like uh, numbers of times. And unfortunately, you know, just like in December, I talked to the man. Uh, he was somebody of, among our survivors from the village in the occupied part of uh, Herson region. He is anonymous uh, in, in our research. But, you know, like we talk, I, I talked, I had a chance to talk to him in summer, our team. And next time I talked to him in December. And it was a day, a week after, a son a brother, a young brother of his wife who remained in this village has been killed. And it was like the days when they learned that the boy is killed and the mother-in-law saw the corpse. And that's saying like, like, I can really track it, that there is this person who was alive in summer, but some months after, because he stayed, he was abducted and murdered. That's also something to remind that it's happening now. So we really, of course, trying to speak to the people who left, mainly. Uh, but despite all the blockade of the internet, other things, uh, you know, it's a modern world. You cannot hide. So the main to say, we know what's going on in the occupied areas. We maybe just don't want to know more because it would really prove this argument that Occupied territories shouldn't remain occupied. Yes, absolutely. And um, of course, you can meet people from Berdansk, from Melitopol, from Mariupol, and talk to them. And uh, uh, we've I, done we've done it many uh, several but, times. But there is really concern. My concern. I'm very very vocal about it now, and I was want to have this warning for the Ukrainian media, for the international media, as. As in 2015, the people are closing up. They are less willing. Because we had the really moment when there was a hope for the liberation. 
So they were like thinking, I'll tell the story maybe in half a year, you know, the, the, the place would be liberated, so I'll share a story with us. And every day, the General Prosecutor Office of Ukraine registered the alleged violation of the Geneva Convention, uh, the rules of the war. And there are many. There are over 110,000, over. What I feel now, that the people who even left and occupied uh, from the occupied areas, they are cautious about speaking to the prosecutors because they have relatives there. They might, they don't know when the place would be liberated, so they are not telling these stories. So, in fact, maybe there would be less news, less cases and incident registered and there would be feeling that like oh we don't have new torture chamber in Kherson maybe you know things are calm but under the surface I can tell that there are more people to whom crimes are happening but compared to the first year of the war they are speaking less and they are less known to prosecutors Yeah, I can confirm because we recently met in Zaporizhia with people from Militopol and Berdyansk From Berdyansk, there were two, two persons who were very reluctant to talk to us. And uh, and uh, we talked finally for two hours, but uh, under the condition that we actually don't pass the story further in all the details. Mm -hmm. So basically, they talk to us, we know this information, we can abstractly retell it to the public, but we cannot tell it in the details. Let me ask you the final question about the justice. So what are the prospects of uh, all these people, all these uh, criminals, Russian criminals to be brought to justice and what uh, we need to do for this? First of all, I think that's our task today to fight cynicism and this idea, because I think it's a part of the Russian strategy to say nothing would happen. The fact that there was a arrest warning for the deportation of the children to Putin in such a short time is incredible. It hurts, even like not traveling to South Africa for the BRICS summit matters. Uh, I think partially Ukraine won in the regard telling that the trials will be there. For the first year I kept and as well as well my colleagues I kept answering the very same questions the justice was never calm these trials takes ages so I think that the fact it's there shows it happened and my call is and my hope is that there should be some other incidents and cases internationally opened on the issue of the attacks on the infrastructure civil infrastructure so it's not just about the deportation of the children. We know that deportation children is a very notorious crimes and there are still a lot of the Ukrainian kids in Russia. However, I, I do believe that it might have been more systematic and even more brazen if not this warning. So that's the first point. But the second is it's true that there won't be capacity for all. I recently just read the, the marvelous book by Linda Kinsler, who is uh, uh, also one of the members of our bo advisory board, and she's uh, the, the American author of the Latvian Roots about the last Nazi trials, you know. And actually, it was very interesting to understand that even during the Nuremberg process, but also in the crimes of the Holocaust, 
usually there were just those cases investigated when there was the testimonies, when there was the evidence, when somebody was public. They never covered everything. But if you have that, the chances were higher. Uh, so we shouldn't give up, and we do have evidence. We have a lot of it. But we want to speak about the justice as a process. Because if we, I think we should be also realistic that the whole story of preserving this memory, preserving the evidence, identifying the people for the courts of public opinion, for the articles, knowing their names is already something. Russia wanted to bury this uh, truce very fast in the early stage of the war. They want to pretend Bucha was staged, the Mariupol didn't happen. They failed. They wanted to tell that there is a life in the occupation, which is okay. They fail. They are failing. Uh, there is a huge challenge for the Ukrainian justice system. And also, I should have, we should have realistic expectation. We know that those I met a prosecutor today, one of the prosecutors today. Uh, I wouldn't kind of provide the details. But look, these people were never trained to investigate international law. They are usual guys who usually needed to, you know, investigate maybe some criminal issues, murders, something, corruption, whatsoever. Now they need to deal with something horrible. It's like every lawyer should become international lawyer. It's partially impossible. Uh, the, but... And uh, when we were presenting the book, we had the we had a specific format. We made the meeting of the survivors and the characters, protagonists of this book, on the public discussion with the general prosecutor of Ukraine and some of the prosecutors. So we had the full day of interaction. And I find out that for me it was maybe the major success, the major event of the last year for me. Because I understood that they needed to meet. Even their interaction means something. They need to explain each other. What is the problems of the people? Why they feel that they're unheard? Why the prosecutors can explain why something is slow? Because in our system, the prosecution was always about the criminals. It was not about the survivors and victims. And... Uh, in the tradition of a Ukrainian prosecution, there is no place for survivors. But now we have very little criminals because they are in Russia. We maybe sometimes don't know their names and we have thousands, hundreds, thousands of the survivors. So they are thinking about the kind of victim-first approach when there would be at least some feedback for the people which was going on. So, And I think it's already something that, for instance, today there was a change of the procedure that instead of the interrogation, the survivors provides witness interview. It's a change of the name. Yeah, it's, it's instead of dopet. You yeah. go for a dopet as if you... Interrogation. Yeah, and like as you, if you're a criminal, right? And you, a survivor, you lived through something horrible and you called for the interrogation. Of course, it's even worse for you. So there are these changes. So I do think it's important and I think that we need to speak about the justice, about the process. And I have a call for the journalists, for the colleagues, that we shouldn't also like undermine what is in between. Because if for us the only goal is Putin, you know, in the orange robe, okay, then we would fail. But we would un but if it's telling everybody's story, you know, making a spotlight, understanding that it cannot be buried, it also plays its role. I still and 
to finalize in the reckoning project. I'm a journalist myself who for the last year speak to the lawyers a lot. And I run the team of the journalists. And the journalists feel sometimes that their profession in the long run might be useless. That, uh, you know, we tell the story and so forth. So unless there is the <laughs> persecution or the process, it leads to nowhere. What I feel that there is a very same sentiment of the lawyers who say, like, unless, even if we file the report, if, we, we, if there is a process, if nobody knows about that, it doesn't matter for us a lot because there are less chances it's investigated. Uh, so I think that there is this frustration from a lot of sides, but we have a chance to do at least something. So um, setting the realistic goals, but first of all, like trying to understand what, what we can do for the survivors as a state, as a society, uh, with any support before this final verdict is there. That's, that's the justice for me still. And maybe one more thing. I mean, people are so focused on uh, Nuremberg trial, but actually what matters is not only Nuremberg trial, but all the, the whole process of Holocaust awareness, which took place just after, long decades after, mostly in, in the 60s, uh, and this transforms the minds, in, and this turned Nazi Germany into a horrible, absolute evil, and not just an aggressor. And maybe this is our task to do with Putinist Russia. Natalia Humenyuk, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Vladimir. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pan Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypalukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.